0: Well, if you would, if you would take God's word in your hands to the, and turn to the book of Philippians this morning. We're in the middle of uh, two series. Of course, we closed out uh, a couple weeks ago uh, the series Snapshots, using the summer to look at different psalms. And now uh, we're in the middle of yet another series, of course, the Live to Give series that will start next week. And I wanted to take this opportunity as we kick off a new, a series, a new a year of ministries, as we uh, look back to a day of remembrance uh, as a nation, to look at a passage of Scripture. In fact, a whole book. Some of you said, yeah, I know your time is shorter, Tim. So, what are you going to do? How are you going to make sure your sermon time is shorter? I'm going to deal with a whole book, the whole book of Philippians during our time this morning. That's what I do. You go with all gusto and you try to get four chapters of God's word nailed out in about 40 minutes. And that's what we're going to do this morning, looking at 9-11 being a life-changing day and asking the question how we here at Village Bible Church can become a life-changing church. If you were around 10 years ago, you have no uh, c- trouble, if you will, remembering the images that we saw on the TV. If we were to go around and ask, where were you when you first heard about the events of 9-11? Almost instantaneously, I believe, you would be able to utter the very place you were. There are very few moments in history where a group of individuals like us, yet again, even above that, a nation that would remember where they were the day at a particular moment in time that day when terrorists more than uh, a couple a dozen of them boarded planes with the intent on destroying America understanding from communications as we learned after the terrorist attacks happened that the desire was is that these attacks and the uh, hitting of major landmarks in America would cause upheaval and chaos that would lead to a dismantling of everything that we knew here in America a collapse of the economy And that the loss of a nation, that was their desire. That was their hope. In essence, those men were hoping to destroy a country with one attack. As close as they came, they learned the resolve of of people was much stronger than that of even the great buildings and skyscrapers that we have in our cities. But in thinking about and remembering a day that brought such destruction begs the question as Christians, as we remember the destruction that man is capable of, to ask the question, what if? What if a church would get serious about their walk with Jesus Christ? And amidst a world of destruction, amidst a world of decay, amidst a world that seems to be in total disarray, that a church would get excited about Jesus Christ, Get excited about the calling that he's given each and every one of us to not only declare the goodness of God, but to demonstrate the love that we find in Jesus Christ to a lost world. What might happen if instead of remembering just the destruction of 9-11, that it would lead us to be a different group of Christians? A group of Christians who take seriously the cause of Christ and the building of of his kingdom. Now I know right away, many of you would say, that sounds great, Tim, and I'm all for it, but I'm a busy guy. And there's a lot of things that are going on. The kids are going here, the kids are going there, and, and it's, it's a busy time. That's one excuse. I can think of another that you would say, Tim, that's a great idea, but don't you know the economic upheaval that's going on? I'm just trying to keep my job, let alone trying to make a way for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For some of you, you're saying, that sounds great, Tim, but don't you know the great trouble that the world has in it? Don't you know how sinful we are as a nation? There's no turning back. There's no way that we as a church are going to stem that tide. And yet through the book of Philippians, we see a church that is not very big. It's not very known. A church that doesn't have a lot of things going for it would be said to be advancing the gospel, even to the point that Caesar and his household would hear the gospel through their message. A little church. Not much different than Village Bible Church. Philippi was a a city in Macedonia. It wasn't really known for all that much. The city had had a famous battle about 100 years before Paul had written these words in his letter. And so they were known for something, but, but it had happened a hundred years ago. So the city wasn't all that impressive. And this group of people, this church, it wasn't a perfect church. Its founder, Paul, had been put in prison for preaching the gospel. And the only way they could correspond with him was to send messengers to receive letters from him. And this is one of the letters that Paul returns after the Philippians send a letter and a gift With one of their leaders, a man named Epaphroditus. But even in their attempt to do good, bad things happen. Epaphroditus heads into Rome to be where Paul is imprisoned. And Epaphroditus, on his visit to Paul, gets sick. The book of Philippians says in the last chapter that he's near death. And so even a good thing that seems to be a good decision almost leads to a man's death. This is a a troubled church in some ways, they're struggling. They had given a gift to Paul, and now Paul was returning a letter with Epaphroditus, hoping to encourage them, and amidst it, they even had the struggle of some disunity. In chapter uh, 3, uh, we see that, that two women uh, begin to struggle with one another, and this issue between these two women becomes such a big issue within the church that it become a distraction. So here you have a church enduring trials, enduring troubles, they'd experienced tribulation, One of their leaders had nearly died doing the ministry, and the church was struggling to stay unified because two women had caused such a big uproar that there was trouble in their midst. All of that, and yet what Paul says over and over again is that their ministry and their advancement of the gospel brought him great joy. So amidst all of the economic turmoil, amidst all of the terrorist attacks, amidst all of our personal turmoil and personal issues, I am here to tell you today, Village Bible Church, that God wants to do great things through us. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be all put together. We don't have to have just sweet little wonderful happy lives for God to do it. In fact, what God usually does his best work with are the dysfunctional ones in the world, are the broken ones, are the ones who are troubled. So how do we get there as a church? The book of Philippians tells us, and I'm going to look at each of them under the heading of the chapter, meaning each of my points will come out of each of the chapters. So there are four chapters, four points this morning. The first thing that we need to do, if we want to be a life-changing ministry, a life-changing church as the church in Philippi was, is we must, in chapter one we see, be community oriented. Community oriented. Community oriented. Now, what do I mean by that? Nine times in this letter, we see that Paul addresses the issue of partnership. He articulates it early on in uh, the letter where he articulates to us, uh, let's see here in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1 verse 3, I thank God every time I remember you and all my prayers for you, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Eight other times he speaks to the shared living of life together for the cause of Christ. Now, this community that we hear about and read about is very different than the community we talk about. In a Facebook world where we say our Facebook community is filled with hundreds of friends, and I know some of you take great solace in the fact that you have hundreds of friends. You don't know who they are, but they're your friends. And you're able to add them. And it's wonderful when you're able to add all these new people. And you say, this is my community. Let me tell you something. What Paul is not talking about when he speaks of community is Facebook. He's not talking about Sunday morning with a cup of coffee in your hand and having a two-minute conversation with another individual. Hey, did you see the socks lost again? I know they're pathetic, yes. And, and all of that going on. Well, how do you think the Bears are going to do? That is wonderful conversation, especially the first part of that conversation. Wonderful to talk about stuff like that, but it's not biblical community. What Paul is talking about is something that is incredibly foreign to us as Western, and especially American, Christians. What he's speaking about is he's speaking to a church that he is experiencing community with, that he loved them deeply. This was a church that worshipped Christ, that walked with Christ, and worked for Christ, and they did it together. They did it with one desire to move forward as a body Hands and feet and legs and arms and, and neck and, and all of the bones and all of the muscles and all of the tendons working in unison for the cause of Christ. Community. Well, where is this community gone? It was present in that first century, this partnership that Paul had. In his book, Scott Peck wrote a book called "Different In the Different Drum, Community Making and Peace. The secular sociologist, Scott Peck, speaks of three steps to community that we need to have. The first step to having community is what he calls the chaos of the individual. What that is, is at a moment in time, each of us as individuals say, as we look to the great mass of people in this world, some 7 billion these days, and we sit there and say, Who am I, and how can I live and do life on my own? If I'm one of seven billion, what's my place, and what's my significance? And we'll be talking about that, especially in our small groups next week, about the significance of one. And so the crisis and the chaos that comes is, if we look out to the world and we say, who am I, and and what am I going to do? And, And amidst all these people, what great significance might I have? It moves then from the chaos of the individual to an awareness. And the awareness is, is if I'm going to engage others because I need others in this world, because I can't live life on my own, then there's an awareness of who am I and what am I all about. And so we begin to look at ourselves and we begin to say, if I'm going to engage others, then I'm going to have to share the real me. And so who is the real me? And author Peck tells us that he says what happens is we begin to do an inventory of who we are. And this inventory begins to show our struggles and our failings and our fears. And what we're looking for is another group of people who they in their own minds and hearts have come to that same place as well. That they have come to the point in their thinking that I too am flawed. I too am failed. And so we have this merging of two groups of people or two individuals both recognizing their issues and their struggles and then coming together. Now, the third uh, aspect of his um, book speaks of real community. When those two broken people or those two uh, groups of broken people come together, they will usually come under a banner of a similar location, of a similar ideology, a set of values. And what they will do is they will, knowing who they are, look to find out how they can better, not only themselves, but others within the community. The glaring part of Scott Peck's book is that he says, this is very hard to find here in America. And I say as loud as I can at that book, it should be found in the local church. Community is where we as sinners know that we need relationships, that God has caused us to be, uh, to be hungering for relationships. But to hunger for a relationship with God and to be in community with God and others means we have to be aware of who we are. The Bible says we're sinners. The Bible says we're evil people. The Bible says we're selfish. The Bible says that we're going to uh, strive and to fight for the things we want. And recognizing that not only allows us to be in community with God, but community with one another. The desire then of the believer who's in community with God and recognizes I need God and I need other people in my life because I'm a rotten individual and I need help with that, is to then get together together with a bunch of other rotten, filthy, bad people, but who have been changed by Jesus, who are in community with him. And it's then, no matter our social economic status, what color skin we have, whether we came to know Jesus today or a hundred years ago, that all of us can come from different locations into this one setting, and we have the opportunity to experience community. But to be able to do that, we must have a right relationship with our God, and we must long, and I repeat that, long to have relationship with people. And if you've ever been involved in a relationship, you recognize it takes work. Notice what Paul speaks about in this relationship. In chapter one, he brings us the first aspect of community, and that is to put our attention to it Notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. That's a mouthful. Notice the times he says every, all, all twice there. In all my prayers for all of you and always. The idea there in the original Greek is a continual activity. He's thinking of them all the time. He's not thinking of just the cool people of Philippi. He's thinking of all of them. He's not just thinking about them. I wonder what they're doing today. But he's remembering them in all of his prayers. Meaning he's not just praying for them once in a blue moon. But he's praying for them all the time. One of the things that we have to recognize in our community is that if we are going to be a real family that our vision statement says that we're going to be, it is going to take time. It's going to mean a changing of our schedules. It's going to be asked to leave something that we would rather be doing so we can go and minister to the people who need us most. It involves attention. Families will never get anywhere unless we as a biological family are together. Likewise in the church. It takes time. It takes attention to build this community. Notice next, it involves not only attention, but affection. Notice verse 7. He goes on, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. The reason why Paul feels this way isn't because God at some point said, all right, Paul, if you're going to be an apostle, you've got to keep track of of all the people at the church of Philippi and Ephesus and Thessalonica and the other places that you've started up. No. What God had built and what the Holy Spirit had placed in Paul's heart was a real and true affection. Literally what this means is, my heart is inclined to you. So he wanted to give his affection, not only to declare it, but to show him in any way that he could his love for them. But it became difficult for him. He was in prison. He says, I'm in chains. And he learned that what I can do is I can pray for them, even though I'm in chains, nobody can keep me from doing that. And I can serve them by writing them letters of encouragement. Paul wasn't able to preach to them. He wasn't able to use his gifts for them. But what he was able to do was he was able to write a letter And he was able to encourage the body because he loved them. One of the ways you will know is if you are in community is your desire to serve in the community. To serve one another. To show how much you care for the brothers and sisters that are sitting in the pews next to you. Because when we begin to put attention to being a family and show our affection to this family, it will lead to one more thing, and that is an advancement. Notice verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear that throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else, that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. What happens is when we join into uh, a union together, in community together, what will take place in this church is the advancement of the gospel will take place because we will begin to articulate the goodness of being a part of the local church. One of the greatest uh, advertisements or evangelism that we do, Amanda and I, to Amanda's family is we speak about you guys. We speak about our love for our church. And over and over again, uh, especially uh, one of uh, Amanda's, uh, both of our sister-in-law, she's she's, uh, pretty much an agnostic or atheist. And what she'll always ask is, who are you hanging out with? What are you doing? Because they can't find community where they're living. And are you finding it at the local health club? And I say, no, no. You know, Amanda, are you finding it at play dates in the park? And she'll say, well, that's some of it, but where you guys always have friends. Every time we hear about you guys, you're doing this with friends and you're doing that. Where are your friends coming from? And we articulate to her, our deepest and closest friendships come from within the church. And she's hungry for that. But right now, her beliefs and her ideology will keep her from it. One of the greatest evangelistic tools that you have is to articulate how much fun it is to be at church. How much fun it is to be with God's people. How the church and God's people, and, and through the word and teaching of God, that we have been changed and transformed. You start talking that way, you're going to get a crowd. You're going to get people say, hey, I want to hear more about that. But what many times we say is, ah, oh, you know, I was working at that bum at church. Man, he just drives me nuts. So be very careful. What Paul articulates over and over again is that of partnership. This word advancement, just for those who love to get into some of the word study, is an impressive word. This word advancement of the gospel was a military term that spoke of a group of soldiers who were given the job by the general to clear a forest so that the rest of the army could march through it to get to the battlefield. When we are a community, we knock down every tree and every obstacle that gets in the way of the gospel. And so by being unified, we are breaking down every barrier that keeps our friends and loved ones from coming to know Jesus Christ. Community is the first of a life-changing church. Notice the second thing. It involves being Christ-centered. It involves being Christ-centered. In the second chapter of our book, as we move through this book quickly, Paul focuses in on Christ in a very famous passage of Scripture, one that we heard part of it read this morning by our worship team, one that many, if you're a believer, have heard before, And it's here that he says, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, what he means there is if you want to experience what it means to be productive in your Christian walk, if you want to experience the blessing that comes from your Christianity, notice what he says, you've got to be like-minded. And being like-minded means you got to humble yourself, and you need to get rid of selfish ambition, and you need to think of others as more important than yourself. And then he moves to one of the greatest parts of the scripture, and he points to Jesus, and he says in verse 5, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. We need to be like Christ. The reason why we need to be Christ-centered is because Christ is our example. Write that in your outlines this morning. He is to be our example. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we need to understand about Christ, if we call ourselves Christ followers is that he is our example. And look at that example. Jesus was great, and he became nothing. Jesus was rich, and he became poor. Jesus had all the rights to all of his prerogatives, all of his desires, all of his wishes, everything that would make him happy he deserved and should have gotten. And instead of that, he came to be beaten and abused. He came to put the confines of human flesh on, and he did all that so that he could seek and save that which was lost. He did that so not to be served, the gospel of Mark says, but to serve. He would demonstrate that with his his disciples by taking a towel and a basin and washing their feet. Now move that to that example as Christ followers that we say we want to live out and look at our attitudes when we come into church and in our attitudes when we engage this community. It's about me. It's about my desires and my comforts, my wants. I want this type of music. I want this type of service. It's not good enough to have the service at this time. I want it at that time. And preference upon preference upon preference. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a member of this church. And the question came up, Tim, are you saying that preferences are bad? No, they're not bad. But when you destroy a brother and sister in your desire for those preferences to become a reality, when you're more concerned about your needs than the needs of others, then preferences go from being something benign to something very malignant. Be very careful, brothers and sisters, that in our preferences, which are who we are, we don't step on others to try to get it. Jesus didn't. Jesus said, it's all about you. It's all about coming and making a way for you. Notice the next thing about Christ-centered ministry. It involves exalting Jesus above all things. Notice verses 9 through 12. He goes on and he says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father amidst all of our desires and wants, the only thing that should matter, the only thing that we should care about, the only thing that should concern us every time we gather together is that Jesus be glorified. That's it. If you came to church for your needs to be met, then you missed out. And I don't know where you got it because it's not in the Bible to have that kind of desire. Well, I'm here because I have needs and my needs to be met. No, the first thing that comes when we enter into this place and quite frankly, when we get up every morning is Jesus, let you be exalted in all the earth. Outreach Magazine just recently came out, they do it every year, of the nation's largest and fastest growing churches. It's an amazing uh, set of articles talking about the size of some of these churches. Tens of thousands of people each Sunday go into these churches, millions upon millions of dollars. My, my father-in-law and mother-in-law were down in Dallas uh, just a couple weeks ago, and they went uh, by uh, Prestonwood Baptist Church. A church that spent $100 million in building a structure. My father-in-law said it looked like it was a mall. And then I saw the mall and I saw how small the mall was compared to that church. He says, it's massive. He says, there's four exit lanes to get to the church off of the freeway. And he says, just tell me that the guy's halfway decent. I say, yeah, he's a good man, Jack Graham, wonderful man of the Lord. And here's the thing that we've got to be careful with. When we start building, and I'm not saying that of Jack Graham and his church, but anytime, time, and including Village Bible Church, when we start thinking that what we're doing is really who we are, and we can start marveling at all that we've done, and all the accolades say, man, look at Village Bible Church, growing church, look at the nice buildings that they have and all of that. If we fail to glorify God, let me tell you something, we've wasted our time. And you have wasted your money if you've given any money to this ministry. Who cares what magazines say? Who cares what the masses say? Who cares what Sugar Grove says about how great we are if we fail to exalt Jesus Christ and we are one of the nicest country clubs in Sugar Grove? That's what we are. And so we need to exalt the name of Jesus. Who cares what people say about my preaching if Jesus isn't getting standing up and saying, well done, young man, well done, then I've wasted my time. We serve here at Village Bible Church an audience of one, and he's Jesus. That's who we serve, and that's who we want to honor. Notice thirdly this morning, as we build community, as we're Christ-centered, then something will come as a result, and that is confident ministry. Confident ministry. Now, some of you say, Tim, confident ministry? That sounds like pride. Isn't that what we're not to be living like? Didn't Paul just say that we are to humble ourselves and in humility to think higher of others than we do ourselves. But Paul says there's good confidence and there's bad confidence. The bad confidence he comes in, that he speaks to Paul in the Philippian church, both of them being confident in the cause of Christ. This confidence enabled them to endure difficult times. But he says, be careful of the things that shouldn't bring forth your confidence. Notice what he says. He says, first of all, your resume. He says, be careful that your resume doesn't Bring confidence to your life. Now notice what Paul says in verses four through six. Though I myself, he says, first of all, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. What he's saying is, is, if you think you're good, I'm better. That's what Paul is saying. If you think you've got it all put together, I can one-up you. Notice what he says. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. What bold statements Paul is making to a group of Jewish people. What he's saying is, I am better than every one of you. We need to be careful as a church that our confidence isn't in the buildings that we build, It isn't in the staff that we hire or the budgets that we create with our giving or the programs and the amount of people that are involved in them. Our resume, what Paul says to that, is all rubbish. If that's where our confidence is at, even the most noble things are garbage. And so here at Village Bible Church, as we continue to grow, as we continue to further the ministry, let's make sure our confidence isn't in this stuff. A very famous church in California, I I won't name it, uh, but a very famous church, powerful um, TV ministry, probably one of the most well-known churches in America, recently had to file for bankruptcy because they were $50 million in debt. One of their masterpieces was their sanctuary, known for its architecture and its beauty, and right now there are five organizations bidding on who is going to get it and take it from the church. Whenever we put confidence in the stuff that we've done, the Bible says in a moment, like a vapor, they can be gone. So where are we to put our confidence? First of all, our confidence is to be found in our Redeemer, verses 7 through 11. Paul says, hey, it's not about what I do, but notice what he says. He says, for whatever is to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of the gospel of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss from compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you want to know where your confidence is found, it is found in a growing and intimate relationship with Jesus to get close to him, and to know him, and to experience him. That should be where your confidence is found. Not in your pocketbook, not in the things that we do, but if anything, at the end of the day, you say, the world's fallen apart, but my confidence, I have confidence that tomorrow will shine again because I know Jesus, and I know Jesus is faithful. Notice the confidence is found in our race. He goes on and he says, we're running this race. And he says, brothers, I do not, in verse 13, consider myself to have yet taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward towards what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize. Some of you have lost your confidence. You're running the race and you've fallen down. Sin has grabbed a hold of you. For some of you, it's trials and tribulations. And as a result of that, you're not sure you're going to make it through. Paul knew that of the Philippian church. And that's why in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it to completion. God was there at the start, Philippians. God was there at the start for us, Village Bible Church, and he will be faithful even when we're unfaithful. His faithfulness will reign supreme. And he says, I started you, and I'm going to make sure that you get to the finish line. And some of you have lost that confidence. And your confidence needs to be in that Redeemer who says he will get you through the race. And then our confidence is found in our reward. He goes on to say in verse 20, of chapter three. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The confidence that comes is at the end of the day, after we've toiled, after we've worked, God says what he's going to do is in a twinkling of an eye make make us like him. And we're going to be with him And so here's the thing, if God who began the work in us is faithful to see it to completion and at the time of completion will transform us from what we are and all our issues of sin and everything and make us like his son Jesus Christ, then should we not as believers have all the more confidence to change the world for Christ? Who is man and what can man do to us if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can do anything against us if we've got God on our side who says he will be faithful to see us through from the start to the end? Our confidence is found in knowing the surpassing greatness of our Savior and our Lord. Finally, it involves being committed. It involves being committed, not committed to an institution, as some of you might think I should be, but committed to certain ideals. Chapter 4 is all about commitment. In chapter 4 right away he jumps right in and he speaks about relationships. And this is where he exhorts the church to plead with these two women that are fighting with one another. And the first thing we must be committed to are relationships. As a church, we're all dirty, filthy, rotten sinners. And what God is telling us and what the scriptures command us is to live in right relationships with one another because God knows that we're sinners, we're going to fight with one another, we're going to step on one another's toes, we're going to hurt one another, and so the job of the local church in community is to hold one another accountable for sin and to biblically and graciously deal with our conflicts. The thing that will keep us from being a life-changing church is disunity. We will do nothing if we are not together. And so Jesus prays that we will be unified in John 17, just as he and the Father are one, that we would be one. Jesus says that the way that we would know that the world would know that we are Christians is by our love for one another. If we're not loving one another, then we are not telling the world of Christ. It involves relationships. Notice, it involves rejoicing in all circumstances. Tough times are gonna come. They had come to the Philippians. They're gonna come to us and it's here that Paul says, Rejoice in verse 4 in the Lord always. And I say it again, rejoice. Bad times are going to come, troubles are going to befall us. In a world of great difficulty, the job of the believer and the job for Village Bible Church when trouble comes is to rejoice in the Lord. God is near, and He's faithful. And so when we're anxious, the scripture says beyond that, that we're to be anxious for nothing. But whatever we are anxious about, we're to give it in prayer to the Lord. And knowing that the Lord will take care of it. And even in our moment of distress, that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It involves right thinking. In this world of chaos, notice what the text says. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure think about such things in this world where we are bombarded with all kinds of thoughts our commitment as a church must be think rightly in a chaotic world and finally it involves relying on the promises of god one of the best scriptures that paul could have finished up with is found in verse 20 philippians and village bible church he's saying to us today I know the walk of Christ is difficult. I know it's going to be hard. I know issues are going to come up. I know troubles are going to come your way. But here is my word of encouragement for you. And he utters these words. He says, And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Do you hold that promise today? Do you hold that for your own life? Do you hold that for the church? That God who is faithful from the beginning and the end will take care of us every step of the way. It doesn't mean life will go perfect for us. It doesn't even think that life will go great for us or good. But what it means is when God sees that we have a need, when God recognizes that something uh, is needed in our lives, He says, I am there at your disposal to address that need in the moment of time that you best need it. As we close, we remember a day that changed lives, 9-11. But let us commit and let us never forget that as a church, we have been called to change lives as well. Not to destroy, but to glorify Jesus and to praise his holy name whether we're in the nursery or in a small group or in some other activity in this church, let us never forget that it's about community. It's about being Christ-centered. It's about uh, finding ourselves confident in the right things and committing ourselves to the right activities and thinking. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for this time. We have remembered you at your table. We have sung of your praises. We've even remembered a tragedy this morning. And Lord, amidst all that, our heart's desire is that you would be praised and glorified. So now, Lord, we leave. And it's easy for us to think through what our lives may look like Going forth from this place, I pray, Lord, that they would be changed. I pray that we wouldn't just think about these good things, but that we would do them. So, Lord, as we leave this place, let us become a people who love one another. Let us become a people who center our lives on you. Let us become a people who put no confidence in the things that we do, but only in our faith and trust in you. And, Lord, let us live our lives. In such a way that the world will see us blameless. Shining like the stars as Paul says in Philippians 2. So that people will come to know you. And that you will be glorified throughout the world. We love you and praise you for this truth. Now Lord give us the spirit and his power so that we can live it. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.